0: For thousands of years, desert travelers of the Sahara spoke of a great oasis, a legend of a lush valley and a city hidden deep in the desert. Even the ancient Berbers in the west, whose tribes date back to 7000 BC and the Egyptians in the east, thought of much of the desert to be a waterless place and uninhabited by man. Oases such as Dakla and Farafa were remote enough, and to venture beyond was to venture into an abyss of sand. We now of course know that this is untrue. Work done by the Royal Geographic Society and countless other archaeologists and adventurers have gone further finding proof of habitation and ancient water. Could a lost city known as Zurzura be buried in the remote desert sands? And if so, who were the people of Zurzura? Join us tonight on Into the Portal for part two of our search for the legendary oasis. everybody. Welcome back into the portal. My name is Andrew McKay.
1: And I'm Amber A.
0: And here we are. We're back again. Super, super quick. Part two. Part two.
1: Yep, Search for Azura continues with theories and conclusions. Mm-hmm. We're going to start this off with just some minor housekeeping, of course. Yep. Um, we've already mentioned this on our social media platforms, but you did hear a lot of references to something called pectoglyphs in the first episode. <laughs> oh, Definitely a mispronunciation <laughs> on our part. On so. my
0: part. That's my bad. Yeah,
1: you know, I didn't so catch petroglyph. it. So it's petroglyph. Yeah, it's petroglyph.
0: T-R-O, not t a. Not Do you pe- have a definition
1: uh, of what a petroglyph is?
0: Petroglyph, yeah. So it's the difference between a petroglyph and rock painting is uh. that it's actually etched into the rock. Okay. But anyway, we mispronounced one. So even more that. ancient then. Yeah, like it would last longer. Interesting. Okay. Um, depending on location, I guess, right? But anyway, that's the one correction.
1: Yeah. And we also wanted to give some shout outs um, just for some awesome reviews that we had yeah. a chance to touch on. So thank you, Dill, the Thrill. Amarou McKay and Desdemona for their great feedback. We yeah. really appreciate that, guess. And we've
0: had a bunch of others too. And like we could sit here and just list them all, but yeah, thanks to everybody who's left a review so far. And if you haven't and you and you dig the show, please please leave us a review and yeah, and uh, let us know that. what you think. Like feedback's awesome, and we've already kind of tailored some episodes based on feedback and exactly. things like that. So it's
1: hugely valuable. To yeah, us, it's so. it's
0: it's really important. So anyway, yeah. So-
1: Another thing, I guess um, we are sort of refining our format. So we've kind of decided on a a weekly release on Sundays yeah and with the possibility of some episodes that are a little bit denser to have two parts so the second would be released on Wednesdays of the same
0: week so it's kind yeah. of a bonus. So those fun ones that are that are that where are we're just... down the rabbit hole you're getting two two in one week.
1: Exactly. So depending on yeah the scope of the subject, um, yeah. we just want to give you the best information and the most information we can in the most entertaining way yeah. like we've already said so exactly but anyways yeah, but we don't really want to. Linger too long on that. We definitely want to just do a quick recap on what we covered in the first episode. Yeah. So I hope hopefully everyone that's listening to this has like gone back and listened to the first one because yeah, really like you
0: would definitely sense. still enjoy this episode without having listened to the first, but it's sort of critical because there was a lot of history. Obviously,
1: we basically looked at it and we we're like, wow, we just gave a history class. Like, yeah. We didn't really <laughs> we really
0: did. <laughs> <laughs> With just a
1: little sprinkle of myth and legend in there. I guess. Yeah, but, uh...
0: we went to definitely the far end of the history spectrum for us because we're history, which is great and and like... stuff, but we're cool. I mean, we're both like, yeah, yeah.
1: That's how our brains work, That's how we operate, so. Anyways, but yeah. So
0: let's do that quick recap then. So basically...
1: So we kind of jumped off with...
0: We jumped off with Herodotus. We did. And I actually found some new info on that. Oh,
1: great. Yeah, you want to share that? Yeah,
0: just just quickly here, because Herodotus hasn't really ended up playing a major role in researching for Zerzura, just because there was only a few loose references that were supposedly in Herodotus, and it's all been sort of mis- misinterpreted misrepresented mm. or whatever but I did find this new piece of information saying that he basically references this um he never references a city but he references troglodytes now that might be another one that I'm mispronouncing and I'm trying to find that out sounds my notes vaguely but familiar. basically it was like cave dwellers So he definitely references cave dwellers in relation to Ethiopians when he's talking about like remote Ethiopian peoples, but possibly also the Tibu peoples in sort of the more
1: um, central Saharan peoples. So the Chad area. Yeah.
0: Chad Basin, Mm -hmm. kind of like uh, uh, Eastern Libya. And there was that
1: mountain range, the T. Oh, like Tibetsi t- or something
0: yeah, like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so that was just kind of like something I found to add to Herodotus that he he definitely was talking about ancient peoples and remote peoples, but nothing was direct to Zerzura. So anyway, that was just kind of a little bit of a follow-up on Herodotus.
1: So from there, I guess we covered um, the 13th century reference we from did. the Syrian governor, the Fayyum. Yeah. As well, we covered the Kitab al-Kanus, so the Book of Hidden Pearls, which references this white mythical city of Zerzura with and they do mention birds. So we did cover the idea that Zazura might be a reference to Zazurs, which is Arabic for little birds.
0: Yeah. And that's the Which Oregon would con-
1: congregate around an oasis. So that does make sense, in my opinion. Right. Um. Yeah. And then what else really stood out to you for part one?
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, the Kitab al Kanun's is, like, the most fun reference because this is, like, a treasure it's, hunter's guide. Exactly. It's the basis it's not... for
1: all of the 19th century explorations. Yes. Really.
0: So that obviously... the political
1: nuances, too. But, right. you know, like, yeah. Yeah
0: that one definitely stands out you know and then the other findings like way later on based off of these ancient sources are the ones that are that that's profound so like like, carlo
1: bergman um the the jeffrey water mountain um petroglyph yes
0: because hieroglyphs
1: too because he had like a layering right
0: yeah of the
1: petroglyphs and then hieroglyphs on top so it's almost like establishing a neolithic period and then a pharaonic period
0: yeah yeah, Which where there was, was really definitely cool. this advance in the in remote areas where people didn't think that it was happening, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, no, so we started with Herodotus, we worked through into the yeah 13th century reference up through the Kitab al-Kanun. So
1: basically we're kind of like lining it up to give some theories, give some more like background into the ancient history too for... Yeah. Just for the um, establishment of this sort of ancient city or because oasis the question or that
0: we've come back to every time and looking at this and going through part one and then obviously getting prepping for part two here is just that is, is the question of whether or not there was one ancient city mm. or one ancient oasis? Or if this has started as some sort of ancient advanced city that people had seen or reported on or whatever, and then it's changed hands over the centuries, or it's mm-hmm.
1: gone through periods of decay, decline, right. and then a resurgence, perhaps. So um, that's
0: what we were trying to investigate.
1: Maybe dependent on the flows of water, whether it be underground right. or above ground, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and we'll definitely dive into that, right? Because we have some, we have some cool stuff on ancient riverbed systems. Yeah. Do and... you want to kick kick? Well, and then, and then even for into the Neolithic. So for sure. I think... I think what I really wanted to start off first was what you touched on really briefly there with the idea that there could be multiple locations or okay. which is the most plausible location. Right. So again, this is kind of in a recap, but basically the main, I got four, four yeah. possible locations. Okay. So the first one was from Wilkinson in the 1800s and he basically, this was uh, Sir John Gardner Wilkinson in his handbook to
0: travelers in Egypt. This was 1835. Yeah
1: and um, so basically he used the account of a camel driver that was wandering after a stray camel and says that he saw an oasis in the distance and this was a five or six day journey west from the road to Farafa. So we have included maps on our blog and um, basically yeah I would highly recommend going to look at that and we are going to be posting, we haven't done this yet, because we have so much to do, but we're going to be posting, um, all of our episodes. Oh, we should have mentioned this off the bat. Hey, in our house yeah, go for shoot. It. Um, so yeah, basically we're going to be posting all of our episodes now to YouTube. So you're going to have some nice imagery to go along with it. And yeah. we're going to be inserting those images strategically in the Throughout, recording. Yeah. Exactly. So when you're when you're, know yeah, when, we when get we're talking about a
0: location, you're going to see it on a map. Yeah,
1: exactly, because I feel like that's super important. I'm a visual learner, so I feel like totally. a lot of other people. And are
0: Obviously, there. for topics like this, like we're dealing with locations and 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 different time periods and it's different hard things like that, to, so it can be to tough. Keep all
1: straight. Yeah. And we
0: appreciate you for sticking with us for, <laughs> <Yeah>. for fun <laughs> ones like this because it is cool. It's like the, if an ancient civilization could have built a, a, a city known as Urzura that predated the Egyptians, blows my mind. And that's what we're really trying to get into here.
1: Exactly. So anyways, slight deviation from the plan there, but okay. So back to the possible locations. So we covered this one. So the first one is the five or six day journey west from the road to Farafa. And Farafa is a fairly central oasis.
0: Um, I mean, it's remote, but it's central enough.
1: It, yeah, central within Egypt. Yes. It's all, you know, not, not central. It's in, like, it's in the middle of oh, It's like a 20-minute walk from the nearest you know? 7-Eleven, you know? Oh, it's yeah. Like... You, got a, you got a strip mall. You got, you got KFC down the way there. You got everything you need.
0: You know, nowadays, you might. I don't know.
1: Except for Tim Hortons. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they made it out there yet. No, probably not. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, so, okay. We got Wilkinson's description. And then he has another alternative description, right? Right. And so that is the two or three days west of Dakla. Right. And... I, well, he had some corroboration from Johnson Pasha, the guy that claimed to have the manuscript the Kanu Catabal Canoes in right. his possession. So yeah. that was John Pasha, Johnson Pasha, sorry. And he similarly argued that Zorro will be found in the vicinity of Dakla. Okay. And he actually uses the Catabal Canoes, like the actual ordering of the words on the script to um, corroborate his argument. So basically he says here, um, yeah, so it's arrangement on the scribe itself. Basically, makes it seem as if the description of Zuzura is under a subheading, under a description of the oasis of Dakla. Interesting. So, in that sense, he's saying these are basically one of the same, they're neighboring, and so we yeah. can't discuss them as a similar. And he actually says here is the quote he says, I can see no reason for supposing any intention on the part of the scribe of breaking off and be- beginning with another locality. Besides, he notes that the road at its beginning passes through palms, vines, and running springs, which pretty clearly shows that he is still dealing with the same oasis. So, hmm. anyways, that was his take on it. I okay. guess there could be, if anyone could find this frickin' manuscript, we could maybe have some alternative explanations, I know but apparently it's missing. Conveniently. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, so that's the second location. Again, so now the third one, I would say, was Laszlo Almagy's kind of, or Mazi, whatever. His, um, his interpretation was basically that they would find it on the northwestern side of the gilf Kabir. Right. And he basically, after doing his ex- expeditions, he did three, I believe. Um, I might have that wrong, but basically he he described finding the three wadis, the three river valleys that were described in the book of Hidden Pearls, right. the Kitab al Canoes. Oh my gosh, I can't say that.
0: It's it's a mouthful. <laughs>
1: But anyways, he yeah he described that basically that's what he thought he had found.
0: Um, and that he sort of, I mean, he sort of finalized it there. Like he, he did. Was like, I found it. But he did,
1: and he told it to people. Like and and we saw it in that documentary on the Army of Lost or the Lost Army of Cambyses II. Yep. They reference him. There was a contemporary of Almaji that was actually interviewed on that documentary, and he said that Almaji took it to the grave. Yeah. And that he didn't share it, but he said he knew where it was. Which, yeah. you know, that could be just a, a thing of pride. I'm not sure. Right. Like, you know, like, he's just like, oh, yeah, like, I spend so much
0: time there. I'm, I'm the, I'm the yeah. be-all-end-all.
1: All. I know everything. Like, whatever. Yeah. It could be just
0: some... The part about that to me, that when I think about that today, obviously is like, you know, we can take that and we're sitting here in 2018. It's like, okay, I'm going to hop on Google earth and I'm going to go just a little further than those three Wadis that he discovered in the gilf and take you a look, but really it's like you don't anything. see anything, but it's just a question of whether or not, <laughs> and I mean, we looked. These things, Yeah, but it's like, this is all <laughs> satellite imagery, obviously. And it's like, well, you know, was, is the, is it, is part of this buried in the sand? Is it, is it carved into the side of a cliff? Like, is it, yeah. is it, um, is it, you know, basically invisible, not mm-hmm. just from satellite imagery now in 2018, but almost as if you were standing a hundred yards away from it in the desert. If you're not you standing in the right spot, you know Yeah, I mean?
1: It's all about your perspective, hey? Yeah. And even like, cause it is, the Gilf Kabir is a plateau. So you do get a rocky outcrop all along its edges that kind of dissolve into the sea of sand. Right. And so potentially there could be even in, into the edge of the plateau, right? Yeah. You don't... Like, I've seen...
0: Well, we've seen... Well, we see that today. Like, exactly. even there's crazy... Uh, um, I'm
1: thinking Central South America. Yeah, like, there's dwellings like,
0: carved into places where there sh- people should never similar. be. But similar in the sense that it's, like, the type, same type of, like, difficulty of living and, like, the rocks... Or the rock face and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway.
1: So, there's that. And so, anyway, so that covers two... Possibly...
0: Or, locations. sorry, three,
1: I should say, of the four. Yeah. And... Al-Maji, his whole idea about it being located in the Gilf-Kabir region, which is the very south west of Egypt. It's like literally, yeah, it's like on the border of Egypt and Libya. Yes, yep. And so basically, he was corroborated by Harding King of the um, of the Zazura Club. Right. Because he actually made a really significant discovery in the early, the teens of the 1900s. So I'm thinking like... He started he started exploring in 1909 and then throughout that whole like into the nineteen twenties, that was when he was publishing his articles. Yeah. But basically he discovered Two Pigged Hill, and which was a very significant landmark for future explorers. And this was two hundred kilometers <clears throat> southwest of Dakla. Okay. So that's heading into the range of the Gilf Kabir. So he was already.
0: So it's, heading it's that about way. it's
1: about halfway.
0: Okay. And then
1: so basically what he found was a bunch of dead birds, again, and right. we did mention
0: we this. We mentioned this, yeah.
1: And he they, they had these, yeah, these olives in the stomach, and he used this to predict that there would be oases, like plural oases, found approximately 400 kilometers southwest of Dakla. So that puts it right in the neighborhood of the Gilkabir, in the northern area of yeah. Gilkabir. So, yeah. So that's another really highly, I honestly feel like that's the most um, plausible. Yeah. But we do have that other mention from the 13th century Syrian governor of the Fayum, which basically said that an abandoned settlement known as Azura was found on the northwest border of the Fayum. So this would be really, it would be really northeast.
0: So that's so different. So it's just, it it's is a diff- It's a different kind of anything. potential location. Although it's interesting the way that's described in that it's an abandoned settlement. Mm-hmm. You know, if this, if the legend of this place starts as an oasis, tr- you know, transitions into a city, Mm-hmm. because there's water there's a water source developed and then it's whoever the, whoever's there it's like we're gonna get into some potential of a, who it actually was and whether and what happened to them but it's like yeah it may have changed hands and so the idea that it was abandoned mm-hmm. and we're talking what was the date for the fayum i can't remember that exactly, was 13th but this century
1: is, AD. Right,
0: ad so when was it abandoned like you know what i mean That's like exactly. how what recent was, the was this state aband- of decay? Like, exactly mm-hmm. so It'd be nice if we had more details on that, but that's, yeah, interesting for sure. Yeah. So those were sort of the predominant lo- locations.
1: So we just want to really briefly cover that again so that people have a gist. But yeah. we're going to be focusing more so on the gilf Yes. region. So yeah. the most southern location, um, most southwestern, I guess. Because
0: yeah. s-
1: it aligns with the most theories that we've come across, I would at, say. Yeah, the
0: most evidence, too. Just, yeah, the most well, theories, the yeah. most evidence. Theories and then, form from
1: the evidence And, and, then, seen, um,
0: yeah. and also just... I mean, the one thing that you just need to know, like, if you, I mean, it's super obvious already, but it's just that like all these places are unbelievably remote. And like we mentioned in the intro, you know, even the most, even ancient Egyptians and ancient peoples, they, they, they didn't go that far, you know, like they did not venture that far. They thought it was instant. They thought you were going to die. If you went out that far, like that was the land of the dead. That's just
1: it. Like they actually thought it was the end of the earth, like the earthly realm. Like even how it's described in ancient Egyptian, um, like, the idea of the traveling of the day mm. into through the sky quadrants. I'm not an Egyptologist, so I can't really...
0: No, it's a cursory glance, details,
1: but... but... yeah, they basically, they saw the sun as rising where their earth realm began. Mm. And so anything past that horizon was basically nothing. Yeah. So, this was very ancient, though. Totally. Like very, and obviously they did explore. But, anyways, yeah. So. All right,
0: are we ready to, to jump off from the...
1: I think so. Cool. I guess, yeah, we want to cover some of the
0: ancient I had this well okay I thought this was really interesting you found us you found a similar source different th- than the one I found but um both talking about the same thing and that's ancient water so this doesn't tie directly mm-hmm. into like into um like the Berbers or ancient peoples of North Africa or anything like that who are, are were around a really really long time. Yeah, but this is um way you know pre predating that. So basically, this was like an article hundred
1: thousand years. Yeah, in we're the talking past. like
0: a hundred thousand years ago. This is an article on it's like popular almost archeology. unfathomable
1: to most people, well, right? Like, like a hundred thousand years ago. I mean, it's nuts. So nuts. Anyways, yeah. anyway. I'm trying to wrap my head around
0: it. But basically, um, there's archeo- archaeological evidence and just evidence in general. Geographic uh, evidence that, basically, yeah, ancient river systems existed that we didn't know existed before. So mm-hmm. there were these... In North no- Africa. In North... Af- it, yeah, mm-hmm. in North Africa. So there were these South to North river systems um, known as the Sahabi and then the Kufra. So I'm assuming that sort of led Ooh, into the Kufra Oasis yes. uh, naming.
1: Interesting. Um, in
0: the east towards Egypt and the Levant. But basically... Um, that a hundred, basically the quote, the article says, quote, um, it's exciting to think that a hundred thousand years ago, there were three huge rivers forcing their way across a thousand square kilometers of the Sahara desert to the Mediterranean and that our ancestors could have walked along alongside these, these ancient river systems. Mm-hmm. So the reason I wanted to just mention this briefly was just because it's like, we didn't necessarily know these existed before and it would have made possible wetlands that that could have lasted longer than, than we're, obviously we didn't know it existed at all, but that's mm-hmm. important. And also green corridors. So yeah, like these pla these routes that early, early peoples of Africa would have traveled to head north into Europe and things like that. Mm-hmm. But if these green corridors existed, how long did they exist? And who were mm-hmm. the peoples that branched off from them? I mean, obviously we know that like the Berbers in the West date way back, but it's like, it's significant. It's- and you
1: even have to think like, as these started to dry up, there would be pockets. Yeah, green pockets, yes. which would form oases right. and all this stuff. So yeah. yeah, as it's starting to get more and more remote, and barren, whatever. Yeah,
0: as the as the as, as things the green
1: change, got brown.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like guess it all dried up, <laughs> right? Like, technical. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's scientific <laughs> term. Right? But it's cool because, yeah, like yeah, how far did it extend, and who could have who could have branched off from from the earliest peoples that traveled them. Yeah. So that basically brings us into
1: the Neolithic period. The Neolithic I guess. period. Yeah. So I would say let's just give a brief approximation. Neolithic period ranged from approximately ten thousand BCE to approximately four thousand, ranging to two thousand BCE. And this is described as the last of the Stone Ages. There were several different epochs.
0: Yep. I would say. I don't
1: know if it's our periods, sorry. Period, not epoch. But Neolithic was the last of those. And this was when we had the birth of farming, right? We had the Neolithic
0: revolution. Revolution. Yeah.
1: So things like, exactly, like herding, domestication of animals, uh, of crops, and things like that. So people are starting to settle. Yeah. And we came across some really cool information that supports the connectivity of the people's residing in these areas we're discussing. So like the Abu Ballas Trail leading away from Dakla towards the Gilf kabir Yeah. There was um, evidence found by Carlo Bergman, the guy from the 1990s slash early 2000s, yeah. who basically, he came up with evidence that there was a Neolithic culture present at Dejeffre's Water Mountain preceding the Pharaonic period, And he actually found these petroglyphs that he interpreted as maps of wells um, and irrigated fields by means of small canals.
0: Right. And he he went on to kind of find those locations. So
1: we kind of briefly covered this in the end of the first episode where we said that this was essentially the first in situ evidence. So in place evidence of an early agricultural report from Neolithic times. Which I find really, really, really cool.
0: Definitely. Because we didn't think people were out there. No. At all.
1: (laughs) And there's other sources I have that basically say there's anthropological evidence of the Neolithic period in Egypt beginning approximately 7,500 years ago. So... This is when they're cultivating wheat and barley, herding sheep, goats, cattle, and pigs. Right.
0: And this was before so. they were starting to record things. So it's like exactly. our, our, our recorded Egyptian history starts like what? Like 4,000 BC or something something along Ooh. those lines or something like that. But people were there. Mm-hmm. People were definitely there.
1: And there was the overlay, right? Of the, of the um, Neolithic and the Pharaonic. I guess yes. we already mentioned that too. Yeah, yeah. But it's really cool because it just changes... My well change my perception on what these people were capable of and how they organize themselves and all this stuff. Definitely. You need a lot of organization to have canals, ditches, irrigated fields, all stemming from underwater sources or sorry, an underground water sources. Yeah, and that's another really interesting thing that I came across is this idea of finding water in ancient cultures. that stems back to eight thousand years ago. I don't want to say 8,000 BCE. I think it was.
0: 6,000 roughly? No,
1: no, no. Actually, it was 8,000 BCE. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, that's okay. But basically, yeah, so there was the first evidence of what's called water dowsing. Right. Or water witching. That's the word I was trying
0: to remember in the first one where I was like, what's it called with the stick? And you're trying to find water. Yeah.
1: So basically, yeah, you have a forked stick. Yeah. And you have the two forks in your hand and then you point in a, I think it's a 45 degree angle towards the ground. And when the, the end of the stick finds water, it'll basically just like jerk like towards the ground. It'll jerk into like a parallel to the ground. That's and so, so th- there's evidence of this, um, yeah, in Iranian caves dating back to, uh, 8000 BCE of water witchers or water dowsers. Bizarre. So this was very widely practiced in, in a lot of different cultures. Like yeah. you can find evidence in China, you can find evidence in the tombs, like um, in King Tut's tomb of 3000 BC, there was water dowsing tools. Right.
0: Found. Yeah, that's right. I remember you mentioned that. So I mean, really no cool. doubt the Berbers were, were familiar with this technique as well. Because like Th- that was something that sort of came up to me in terms of like, because we're looking in, in Egypt, we're looking in the east, and then we're looking west and sort of, and you know, we were for this story, it's been sort of central Sahara and then over towards the Gulf Kabir, which is kind of in like, yeah, North Sudan, kind of mm-hmm. southwest Egypt, that type of thing. But the Berbers were interesting just because of their history. When we pulled that up, like 10,000 years ago, the Berbers were a distinct group on the west and then yeah. it wasn't until sort of like 7,000 BC sorry I said I already messed that up 10,000 10,000 BC mm-hmm. and then around 7,000 6,000 BC they were actually breaking off into tribes and we'll touch on that a little bit later because you you found some stuff talking about potentially how they were I mean they they took a lot of people as slaves and stuff like that so they were maybe venturing yeah. beyond their territory and well, that could have been it. a connection to it
1: Zuzura also known as the Berbers, also known as the Moors, <laughs> um, they were they were not a a, um, a single entity. They definitely had uh, a, a plurality, right, of right. cultures and peoples, and this spanned the whole of North Africa from Spain over to Tunisia. So okay. we're not quite reaching we're not reaching Egypt we're not reaching Libya no. but you would think that these people would be traveling around in that area there was evidence of a uh, of, of a really a uh, flourishing slave trade in the it was a sub-saharan slave trade so right. basically it was or sorry trans-saharan not sub-saharan okay so they were taking people from the interior and making slaves of them yep. and basically shipping them to um, hotspots. So say like Maghreb cities, things like that. And then even further, um, across the Mediterranean. I see. And there was a significant flow of people. There was one estimate from a John Wright who actually wrote a book, which we'll be including in a resources page. Okay. And he basically, um, yeah, it's called the Trans-Saharan Slave Trade was written in 2007, but he estimates an annual influx of slaves from the interior Africa, to be approximately five thousand individuals per year, and this was dated to fifteen hundred AD. Okay. So it's in the middle of the, the middle of the Middle Ages, right? The medieval so times. This
0: is significantly later on. It is. Yeah.
1: But that's not to say that
0: they weren't practicing so, sort of well. The that's same, just like, the it. same thing. And there's yeah.
1: evidence. Oh my goodness! Like I've got, I've got articles here that are saying that. There's definitely a migrational flow of, from the interior into Western and Northern Africa. And then there was also another flow into Egypt, which occurred approximately in the year 750. Okay. So this is AD. So yep. this is later. Yeah. This is later, but at the same time, it is relevant because it shows migrations of people and how basically people they weren't rooted to one particular area no
0: they were they were semi-nomadic for the most part in this area and it's because of water for the most part i mean Mm. the other interesting thing about the berbers that i kind of pulled up obviously they have like their ancient ancient culture and i didn't know this but they are known for some megaliths that they created Hmm. so one of the main ones is a rock monument in northwest africa known as mazora or Mazura. Um, and it is composed of a circle of megaliths uh, surrounding a. Uh, I can't pronounce that word, but anyway. <laughs> Come on, just <laughs> it's a, give it a go, give it a, go, give a, a, a Tumulus, go. I oh. think, is it? But basically, apparently the highest megalith associated with the Berbers is more than five meters. So, like, oh. these are, I mean, they, they, the technology factor. You know, advanced peoples. Sorry, so this is this like back.
1: one single block of rock? One
0: single block. From okay. the reference that I have here. This was just a cursory glance That's at some of this Berber stuff. Yeah. But just to think that there was... These people predate the Egyptians. Their tribe... Their, 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 their break off their tribes. They're powerful. They're taking slaves from the interior of the Sahara. They're sticking mostly to the West. They've got their
1: trade routes. They've got a whole bunch of stuff. I would almost argue, because we have come across that article that basically connects the Abu Balas Trail to the Chad Basin, which makes me feel as though they're... Is definitely yeah. There's a lot of trade connections, a lot of intercultural type things, and I think it's highly plausible that the even if the Maghrebis or the Berbers and Moors, or whatever you want to call them, yeah. didn't reside in that particular area that we're discussing, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have gone there anyway, or a faction yeah. of them would have. Some of them. They're not was. enslaving themselves; they're taking outside populations yeah. and enslaving. And just on that note, I do have. Um, mentioned from wilkinson because in his book from the 1800s 1830s he basically he he uh takes evidence here let's see if i can find this yeah so in his handbook he describes how the population of the oases that he visited near dakla near uh farafa all these things um they had a stronghold slash castle and this was for protection from attacks by arabs and from quote, more dangerous enemies. Huh. And they relate a melancholy account of a sudden attack from some blacks of the interior many years ago who killed or carried off a great part of the population. Interesting. So in my mind, that kind of, it doesn't really align with Berbers because Berbers are a bit lighter in They're more fair skin, skin tone. for sure. Yes. But at the same time, it just shows like, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of sectoral, like regional, yeah um dissociative identity. So these are infighting, not infighting, but they're competing, right? Yes. For resources yeah. and and a lot like before before we said slavery was bad, um, yeah. resources meant people. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, if there indeed. was people that you didn't give a crap about, then you would use them. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, that's sort that sounds that interesting.
0: That's an early theory then. Oh, and actually,
1: just to continue on that note, sure. there's a better quote from him, and he basically says that Gababo, another wadi that was next to Zizura, um, and part forms part of the same oasis, he describes them as, quote, inhabitants... Are black sorry that's not really incredible.
0: this is 1835 <laughs> <many of>
1: people <laughs> have been carried off at different times by the mulgrebins for slaves interesting so there you go right so that's a... and the darker skin the less consequence for slave trade right right because even into the late like late ages of colonialism europeans actually they cared about people that had the same skin color
0: and they, <laughs> they started they to care
1: care well, even, like, they, they cared into the Middle Ages. Yeah. So even in the times of, like, the Crusades and stuff, if you were enslaving white populations, they Not would cool. take issue. But if you were enslaving <laughs> black populations, they didn't care. Interesting. And that just goes along with all the, yeah, the racism and just all that stupid stuff. But anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's just the idea that the Maghrebists, the North Africans, were engaged in the slave trade and ran raids of outside populations to support this. Okay. So, anyways, yeah, that's my little.
0: So that's little a very bit. yeah. So and I, I, you know, I buy that as an early theory then that like if there were because a lot of the sort of uh, North African, African central, central North African, central Sahara nomadic peoples that mm-hmm. we'll get into in a sec were definitely super dark skinned. The TIBU peoples, other uh, sort of North Sudan, Sudan tribes um, from from Chad, different things like that. So it makes sense that. They could have ha- they they were populating some very rich, lush oases mm-hmm. that, and this is predating the Egyptians. That was yeah. um, discovered by the Berbers and sacked, and, yeah, and possibly inhabited by them, which would account for some of the later references to the people of Zarzura being fair skinned. Yes, what we'll get into in a sec. About so yeah, exactly. that ties into it. Mm-hmm. So I think moving on from the Berbers is basically coming into the camel driver story, right? That yeah. was the 14th.
1: 1481. Right. And he was the guy, the camel driver that got lost in the desert. He almost died. Uh, it was like a week long sandstorm. <clears throat> I love copper. <laughs> people can die in deserts and sandstorms. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we get into the idea that the people of zizura were lost crusaders. So this is an alternative theory.
0: Okay, so just let quickly recap that does, that camel driver story the, a little bit more because it was the ruby.
1: Okay, so basically, right. yeah, he got caught in the sandstorm, was half dead when these um, people of Aryan features basically saved him, and took him back to this this white city. It was so lush, and there it was basically it was an right. oasis. It was very highly developed. There were. Um, they spoke an Arabic language, but it wasn't a dialect that he necessarily was familiar okay. with and they didn't have prayer calls. So he said that it was a non-Islamic
0: right. community, right. which was so interesting. So, so and the, the straight swords too. And the straight swords. Arabs. So the sphincters. main things sphincters from Arab. that story are obviously. <laughs> I just
1: said Arab, Arab, sphincters. <laughs> <laughs> no, skimters or whatever <laughs> they're called. <laughs> Is that
0: what they're called? It's S C T.
1: Yeah, it's got a weird
0: spelling anyway. That's hilarious. But yeah, so I mean, straight swords, Aryan features, and spoke Arabic, but not the same dialect, and presumably didn't practice uh, Islam, mm-hmm. because there weren't the same calls in the city. Yeah. So.
1: And then the ring that was found on him.
0: Right. And then that was... supposedly had <laughs> European origin yeah. when it was examined later on. We can't find that ring. There's <gasps> not many ref- any reference to the ring, but s- supposedly Gaddafi ended up with it. And mm-hmm. possibly one of his kids when they before he was assassinated later on, and who knows where it is? Yeah, but, it all
1: it, it made its way into the hands of King Idris, and then he was deposed of by Godfrey Right.
0: in the sixties, nineteen sixties. So this account basically gives rise to the theories of obviously Aryan peoples occupying Zeros. So we'll start. There's a there's a bunch of them. You mentioned the Crusades, so we'll kick it off with that one. So. Some people posture that the inhabitants of Zerzura were in fact some of the knights of the first Knights of the Crusade. Not the first crusade, but Knights of the, the Crusades. Um, when they were venturing into North Africa. And things didn't necessarily go great for them, and they may have retreated and or sacked oases that were further to the west. Mm-hmm. So basically I couldn't find a ton to support this. I mean, other than just the ties to, like, the Camel Driver reference or a few other kind of references. Like, obviously, the Kitab al Kanun mm-hmm. makes a similar reference to um, people's inhabitants or Zura that are not dark-skinned. Um, or, at least, or is that true? They just said the White City. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we don't yeah. actually know if they mean that was white thing in terms that was of, like, like oh, the rocks they're what using. If, like, what if they
1: meant, yeah, like, the Kitab al Kanun is interpreted as a white city. What if people interpret it as, oh, it's a white people city. That's the thing. That's what I'm
0: saying. Like the difference between you interpret it as they're Aryan or the actual material used is like from a type of like limestone that's really pale Mm -hmm. or something. Right. Yeah. So anyway, but in terms of the Crusades, you know just a tiny bit of background. I mean, it's obviously the Mm -hmm. the crusades are basically just like Christian wars. You know, it was like, it was a group of people. It was the Pope would just wanted to get some, uh,
1: what was it? He was pissed off about something. And I mean, it was like, it was kind of, Oh wait, no, no, no. I know what it was. It was something to do with like the first crusade. I remember reading or no, not reading. We watched that, that awesome. What is it? What are those clips called again that we love? And it's like, it's like, 10 minute history class or something. Oh, like um,
0: that. Crash Course.
1: Crash Course history, yes. So we watched the Crash Course on the Crusades, which was pretty entertaining. Yeah. And how he was saying, like, yeah, like it didn't go well for them. The Pope initially started it as a convenient way to unite the people against an outside population. So. Yep classic
0: political
1: sort of uh, totally and it motive. was easy
0: to get people to sign up because a lot of people think oh the Isn't crusades it? they were all like these professional knights and they no. were like no they were peasants they were yeah. people who they went to and people said hey thought
1: they were gonna go to heaven because yeah problem. you want to get
0: washed away at your sins you can go you can go mm. rape and pillage all you want and as long as you end up in the holy land you're gonna you get to go to heaven so that's a pretty alluring uh, proposition for yeah. people in the middle ages you know you can basically wipe your hands clean of Anything and everything. Mm-hmm. So I would have taken that deal if I was in, in the middle. if you had you're something, a, you're like, oh, I'm not sleeping well at night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's sort of the basis of the recruitment for the Crusades. So basically, there's eight major Crusade expeditions that occur in between 1096 Jeez. and 1291 AD. Jeez super bloody super violent super ruthless mm-hmm. um basically wars between christians and muslims predominantly right mm-hmm. so there were north african campaigns and that's kind of the basis of the theory of crusades the crusaders as the occupants of Zerzura, like i said now they didn't do great in north africa <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't like, do great
1: in they didn't do
0: great in general they better better success than the in first Styr crusade
1: like the most successful and then it just kind of tapered out after
0: yeah that, right? i mean i feel like like louis the Oh, which king, which, I can't remember which Louis was in France, Henry. but like, there was just a we bunch We should include of,
1: a reference to the Crash
0: Course on. We should, actually, because it's a Go watch it, rule. it's great. <laughs> but, yeah, they struggled in, they struggled in North Africa, so they, so like, after attempts to, uh, the Crusaders of Jerusalem, after they sort of were there, they attempted to capture Egypt, um, you know, seized Cairo in 1169, but the... Egyptians fought back and basically forced, forced them out. They made multiple incursions into Egypt, but basically every single time they didn't really do that great from like the references that I could find. So the only thing that I could sort of tie to Zerzura from that would basically be, you know, this was a group of people that were said, go pillage, you know, whatever mm-hmm. in in the name of the Lord, right? Yeah, it's okay right. to you kill non-Christians. It could be an anonymous
1: group of Christian if you were,
0: Yeah if you went on an expedition that was unsuccessful and this was maybe sort of, these were the later stages of the crusades and it's unsuccessful and maybe you haven't sacked or pillaged quite enough for you, right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe there was a sect, a branch of people that were like, Hey, we heard this rumor of an oasis. Maybe they went along those caravan routes and maybe they made it that far Mm -hmm. and you know, Sacked the city or, or Oasis or whatever it was or whatever was left of it at this point in time in, you know, whatever, 1200 AD, almost. Ex- yeah. And, and it, oh. inhabited it. And that would account for the, from the camp, for the camel driver who's lost, you know, recovered by Aryan people, straight swords like the mm-hmm. Crusaders,
1: mm-hmm.
0: acquires a ruby of European origin, all that stuff. 12th century European origin. It is completely unsubstantiated.
1: Completely, Yes
0: but a theory that's out there nonetheless. What do you make of it?
1: I, I find it definitely to be a stretch. The only thing for me that really draws me in is the reference to the ring. Yeah. And the idea that perhaps, maybe, maybe even this ring... I kind of, I don't know. I struggle because, like... The ring could have been... Stolen from yeah. like, like the um, the Amir thought that Hamid Kalia had stolen it, but it could have been there's so many possibilities. Like,
0: it, yeah, it's what it's, if it
1: was all a Mirage? What if he imagined
0: it all? Like, well, and is, that's I mean, what we'll get into in a little there's bit. There's basically we're two the camps of this, us. right? There's two camps of these theories sections that we're getting into here. One of them is kind of hev- more heavily weighted over the other, and it's basically, yeah who could have been there and when and we're looking at historical mm-hmm. stuff and then there's like you just said like sort of the mirage aspect n- real mythical city is it is it real only to some or or whatever right like we'll get into sort of some more mysticism mm-hmm. surroundings a, in a few minutes here yeah we're working our way through the potential actual people that could have op- occupied it yeah so but i'm gonna i'm basically counting out the Crusades. crusader. I'm counting it's it out. Not. It's sort of too modern. And we have modern. a few different
1: groups, right? Like, it's too
0: modern in my opinion too, because it would just be like, obviously that's not that the Would that be origin. part of the Coptic
1: Christian theory then?
0: Well, we can move into that right now. Because <laughs> along the lines of Aryan peoples, or lighter-skinned peoples occupying mm-hmm. Sersura, another theory is Coptic Christians. Mm-hmm. So, basically, Coptic Christians What does Coptic
1: Christians even mean?
0: Well, they're the, I mean, Coptic. I guess that's
1: they're really early Christians. That's a
0: good question. I mean, they're the first Like Old Christians. Testament Christians. They're the first, old, yeah, they're the Old Testament Christians. Wait a old second, Testament weren't Old
1: Christians. Testament Christians actually Jews?
0: Well, yeah, the Hebrew Bible was sort of the first, and then basically this is after Jesus, so G- this is after the death of Jesus, basically 10 years after the death of Jesus, okay. Coptic Christianity hmm. becomes the thing. Okay. So we're looking at, um, yeah, so, and it, this was Egypt. So at the point when Christianity sort of became a thing in Egypt, this was not the same Egypt, obviously, it had been broken. It had been controlled by Persians, then or Greeks, then Persians, then Greeks again, and then, and then had then Romans, been attacked, and then, and, then and then Romans, and then all these different Arabs things. It's sort in. of a broken Egypt at this point in time, obviously. Zoroastrianism had, had mm-hmm. become a thing, and there were there were minorities that were, which is just a monotheistic religion, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so the idea that Coptic Christians could have been the occupiers of Zerzura basically comes from when Alexander the Great shows up. In 323 BC, and uh, oh wait, sorry, that's a different reference. Never mind. Basically, okay. So Coptic <laughs> Christians—that's
1: that's before Coptic Christians.
0: Sorry, this was a—I've di- got two different paragraphs set together here. Mm-hmm. The first, yeah. So like 43 AD, Coptic Christians—they're not actually persecuted really until like 200 AD. So they were having an okay time in Egypt. They were definitely a minority, but they weren't.
1: Or would they have been the ones that were sacrificed? Because I definitely came across some sources that were saying that
0: there was like,
1: like, the transitional, like quote unquote, whitening of northern Africa and Egypt, right? And how throughout times, like yeah, like um, white invaders would come in, um, they would be suppressed or they would be amalgamated into the population or whatever, and a lot right. sometimes these whites. Were used for human sacrifice, things like that,
0: by pharaohs and all that. So could have been some Coptic Christians near (laughs) at the end of sort of the Egyptian one, but
1: yeah,
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. very, very, yeah, definitely could have been. I, uh yeah, once again, I could not find a ton to um, to corroborate it. And sorry, that Alexander the Great reference was for Zoro the Zoroastrians. (sighs) So basically, just to just to finish off with the Coptic Christians there Mm -hmm. again right aligned with the uh, crusaders for me like I don't think it's that accurate so like 2 201 AD is when the first major wave of persecution in Egypt starts to happen did did some of them flee possibly you know they weren't exactly like the most likely group to be able to be like hey yeah Coptic Christians they definitely just ventured off into the remote Sahara and survived they didn't descend from nomadic peoples. They didn't have any of these skills necessarily. It just would have been out of pure survival. Mm-hmm. And there's not really much Fling evidence. Clean persecution. persecution. And the so same thing goes for the Zoroastrians. So that's where that, uh, like I said, the uh, the uh, Alexander the Great reference like shows up in 323 BC and persecutes the Zoroastrians. He's not cool with it. Mm-hmm. And he burns their books and uh, they're being killed and stuff like that. So once again, that would basically be the only the only thing that ties to Zerzera there is that they they followed a legend. They're like, we're not safe here. We need to find somewhere where we're safe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, a re- remote oasis in the middle of the Sahara where most people don't think anyone can survive is probably going to be a safe place. Hmm. Was Could it have been Zoroastrians? I don't know. But... That's another sort of loose theory that's out there. I don't think. So, Coptic Christians, Crusades, Zoroastrians, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not thinking they have a ton of weight. So, So.
1: Even before that. What do you got? Well, we have some Old Testament stuff, too. And we have... You
0: know it's gonna be juicy when someone starts a sentence off with that, don't we? <laughs> we have some Old Testament. We got some Old Testament stuff old here for old, you.
1: We're getting testy with some Old Testament Because <laughs> <stuff. laughs> there's the idea that perhaps one of the lost tribes of Israel was the population of Zizura.
0: Oh, that's a juicy one. Let's and, get even, into that.
1: Even before that, there's another offshoot that proceeds that basically says that the lost tribes could have been Moses and... Leading the exodus of the Jews, right? And you know, I did look into this a bit because, yeah. like, you know, yeah, maybe, but uh it just it all the evidence points to an eastward flow of migration. There isn't any reason for them to go west either. I'm okay. just going to agree with a lot of uh, the authorities in the field and <coughs> reach my conclusion. <clears throat> Now. <laughs> <laughs> just a half an hour from now. Yeah. But basically say that, yeah, this is... They were heading towards Israel, the Promised Land. So that's yeah. east. That's not west. No. And I don't think there would have been a faction that broke off and was like, see ya, Moses, we're gonna go this way.
0: Yeah, um, that doesn't seem the, very Yeah, likely. it just doesn't
1: seem. But anyway, so getting back to this lost tribe. So this would have been in approximately 722 BCE with the Assyrian invasion of Israel. Um, essentially... Israel was founded by the 12 tribes of Jacob?
0: I think so. <laughs> Let me just pull oh, no. this up here. No, it's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, but anyways, it doesn't matter, but there was 10 of them that apparently left and two that remained, and there's a lot of inconsistency and um, conjecture as to where these guys ended up, but again, eastward flow. There's a lot of evidence to say they headed towards Iran, that they headed... Um, they crossed a river that is actually the euphrates river maybe perhaps one could have gone west and crossed the nile and it was described in a different way
0: that would be the only explanation so like yeah fell in 723 bc the kingdom of israel so the Mm 10 tribes split off um they say that their inability to rejoin their brethren was attributed to the fact that they were basically scattered so far Mm -hmm. throughout the world that they were unable to re- Um, regroup you know i think that uh that um i don't know i'm not sure how much i'm not sure about the possibility of this one
1: yeah i feel like it's very again unlikely uh it's just something to mention though because again like we get this (sighs) it really just throws a bolt into all of our like you know all our spokes or so to speak or whatever with the idea that perhaps it was a white Aryan population as opposed to maybe a more ethnic, darker... Right. I don't want to get too hung up on that, though, but... No,
0: I don't want to either. That's literally just off of that one story. It just happened to be one of the more interesting accounts of Mm. somebody being lost in the desert. Because I feel
1: like that's just, in general, Lost Tribes of Israel is super, um, like, fascinating for whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. And I just... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's it's one of those ones where it's, like, so much is attributed to it. It's almost like saying, like, oh, Zerzura. might have been the Atlanteans. You know, yeah. like, where they, they just, like, ascribe it to all sorts of whatever.
0: Right. But, yeah,
1: we just wanted to cover it anyway. Yeah.
0: Okay, <coughs> la- last one. This is my last one for the idea of, uh, that the people of Zerzura could have been um, Aryan. Mm-hmm. So... And again, this is like, <laughs> what
1: do you get? Not for me? a
0: ton of evidence. This one's really fun, though. The is this idea. This one of your favorites? The, well, was this,
1: was this your little?
0: This isn't my theory. No. But it's up there with one of my more one of my favorite ones, mm-hmm. that there were that the Celts were in Africa. Mm-hmm. Now. The origin of the Celtic peoples has been debated over the last few hundred years, for sure. Originally, people thought that they came from east to west in Europe. Like, they were sort of southern Germanic, worked their way west, ended up in the British Isles and in Ireland and Scotland and this type of thing. But that apparently has sort of changed around. And it's actually more west to east uh, Hmm. for the archaeological evidence and also the linguistic ties. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Anyway, there's legit peer-reviewed sources that talk about that kind of stuff, and then not so peer-reviewed sources that talk about the Celts actually in North Africa. Hmm. Could they have gotten to North Africa? Definitely, it was not out of the realm of possibility. They traveled the Danube River, which takes you right into the Black Sea. Herodotus supposedly went as far north as the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a Greek, but you know, he went down into Egypt. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely could have been there. Was this a, was five. There's 20- a
1: flow. Of there was cables. a flow.
0: So, but basically. This is from ancient origins, so not exactly peer-reviewed, but I did find a few other sources. But saying third century BC that Celtic warriors of Eastern European origin, of European origin rather, were included in Egyptian battles. That they were basically mercenaries employed by a by, oh my gosh, how do you pronounce this Egyptian? Ptolemy the second. Oh,
1: Ptolemy, yeah, Um, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Apparently. There's some evidence that he employed Celtic mercenaries to assist in,
1: mercenaries. In, in in some of their crazy
0: standoffs against peoples that were coming in to mess with them, which included Libyans, uh-huh. um, include like Libyan tribes, which included obviously like Phoenicians, um, uh, Turks, like the uh, oh, what was that called, like the uh, the Hittite Empire Ooh, yeah. in, Tur- mm-hmm. in Turkey. And they needed some help. And apparently they contracted Celtic mercenaries, which is really cool. Like some Mm -hmm. people even say that like they stuck around. Celtic warriors found a new home in Egypt, married local women, you know, um, that, you know, there was Greek (laughs) historians that made reference to this. Um, Polybius, Greek historian Polybius.
1: So Celtic would this have been like under the Druids and things like so that? So that's the
0: thing. It's mm-hmm. like could this be tied to the ancient Druids, which were these mystics of the Celtic religion, obviously, and they're tied to Stonehenge and crazy things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, you know,
1: even today they have a annual ceremony where they go to Stonehenge and they celebrate the celestial. Like,
0: exactly. I don't
1: know something to do with that.
0: So, so once again, for
1: astrological. Celtic things.
0: swords are straight. You know, so that ties into the first story. Um, Herodotus, mm-hmm. in his, in the histories, mentions the Celts a bunch. Does um, he? He does. Oh so he mentions them. Nothing in terms of them being in Egypt, but he talks about how, he talks a lot about like the Danube River and sort of some of the geography of Southern Europe hmm. and how Celts occupied these areas. So they were definitely really? known. This was, this was for... This was like 400... 423 BC Herodotus, right? Yeah. So this is going to be a couple hundred years later, supposedly, that they were employed by an Egyptian pharaoh. Hmm. I think it's entirely possible. If anyone was going to be ring. hardy enough people to, you know, win a few battles, if you're a group of mercenaries that are going to be like, you know what? We're going to follow a legend. It all kind of ties into the same things. It's either you're fleeing and you're going to follow a legend to try to find safety mm-hmm. or you're a hardcore group that's going to follow a legend because you maybe didn't get quite enough if you're a crusader or if you're a Celt, Celtic warrior, maybe your your final destination isn't in, in Egypt, but at this legendary oasis mm-hmm. that possibly they got to and occupied. So Celtic warriors Celtic as the Zerzurans, the later Zerzurans anyway. Very intriguing. Is sort of and that's my last that's the last theory that there's sort of some loose evidence for along the lines of Aryan population or European origin or fairer skinned origin.
1: I thought we had something on
0: Nordic. You know, I tried to find some and I just ended up coming back to the Celts. Oh. Because here's the thing with the Vikings they didn't really start their whole deal until after the after the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. like so. And we're gonna get into I'm gonna talk about the Bronze Age collapse 1200 because that's gonna be my main theory. Okay. They kind of came along after that. Okay. There could have been early early expeditions of Norse or something like that, but it's like so. You're just... talking
1: Celtic Celtic peoples being in this area at what date?
0: I'm talking like 300 BC.
1: Three hundred BC. I'm
0: talking like before Christ, possibly even before but if that. If Herodotus
1: was writing about it, then
0: well, he wasn't talking about them in Africa. Oh. He was just talking about them in general. Okay. And he refers to them at at, at their locations in Europe and that they're familiar with the Danube River okay. and all okay. this kinds of stuff. I see. Yeah. Sorry. So so case. he didn't actually directly reference them in Egypt, but they're there. I mean, I mean, they're they're they're, they're in the. Amongst, they're in the discourse of people, of uh, historians, travelers, the people that know about military history. That's oh. a possibility. I think the possibility of Celts in Egypt and having a branch of them go off and occupy oases has more weight than the Crusades, to me. Yeah. Because... The Crusades had one specific purpose.
1: They did, and they wanted to get home. They like, wanted to get would home. Why do you want
0: to? Like, you know, the Kel- like this was. This was earlier. This would be Fry maybe people more open to settling, somewhere. Yeah. Or you know, so. Cool. I think that's a pretty cool, cool one. I like it. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. Mm. We're moved on from that though. So, basically.
1: Moving on. Moving on. Um. Yeah, that, I find that super interesting. I actually t- I didn't find anything about Celtic people, so... <laughs> I know. This <laughs> is <it's> all new. <laughs> I kind of,
0: like, went down... It's so hard because You it's kept like,
1: telling me. I were, like, sitting across the room, like, I'm going another the rabbit hole here. Like it's going just nothing here, but like, rabbit holes
0: with this. Like, we literally... Course. You could spend an entire three episodes on My favorite hearing that Kelt's. I haven't even
1: mentioned, we're saying for last, is going to be super down the
0: rabbit hole, I want to get to those, so let's get through some of the rest of these, too.
1: Well, geez, Louise, how
0: many more you got there? Okay, so basically, I was just going (laughs) off of... (laughs) So, okay, I mean, those were all based, again, based off of the idea that these people were were fair-skinned. So now I've got some stuff sort of based off the idea that it could have been an ancient North African kingdom. Okay. So this is basically just going off of some information on the Tibu peoples Mm -hmm. and some anecdotes from Almaji Clayton and Wilkinson. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're moving on from the idea that they were fair-skinned peoples and the much, much, much more likely option that the very first inhabitants of Zerzura were, in fact, peoples of uh, North Chad, North Sudan. Mm Mm-hmm the Tibu peoples, basically nomadic North Africans. Right.
1: And that is supported by Carla Bergman's finds, right? Right. The the Abu Balas trail. Yes. And, uh, the article written by Thomas Schneider that basically connects that to the ancient Paleo lakes and the Chad basin. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And so that was, again, later on, you mentioned earlier, Wilkinson, he makes a reference to like the oasis of the blacks, definitely Mm -hmm. not politically correct, but the idea that Oasis So multiples, Mm -hmm. um, so, and that to me, and he, that makes me think of the Tebu peoples right off the bat, um, because they're in that area mm-hmm. and because there is evidence of them found not only in the Gulf but also at, um, Mount, the Unet mountain range that was discovered in 1923 that we talked about right. in the first part. And so yep. the petroglyphs and rock paintings there mm-hmm. are tied to the earliest, ancestors of the tibu people
1: cool was that the cave of swimmers or is that the
0: cave of swimmers i couldn't find if it was directly tied to the Tebu people or not the cave of swimmers is fascinating though because obviously they're swimming there's water what the (laughs) heck are these people swimming in obviously there were wadis around but it's like you ain't just swimming in some little pond if you're painting it because it's significant you know what i mean like there's gonna be there's there was much more significant water source there at the time when that was painted exactly so, yeah, Wilkinson mentions the Oasis of the Blacks five or six days west on the road to Farafa, another oasis called Wadi Zurzura. hmm You know.
1: And you have Gababo. He right. did reference some other, like, the Simartane people and the Wayne people, and I, I tried to look into those and I couldn't find they're any They're really tough to
0: find. There's so many different That's names. That's what makes me
1: think, like, he was, he was literally there on the ground asking people. It's, like, almost like an ethnographic type thing where perhaps yeah there's just no written history for these people right or if there is you really have to dig into those anthropological journals and whatever because yeah yeah otherwise it's just it's
0: tough it's, tough to find yeah. so the other thing co- sort of corroborating that it could be the could have been the earliest possible tibu peoples was the the encounter that al-maji had with a a an arab man in 19 in the 1930s mm-hmm. and i mentioned this in part one but I'll go into. I'll mention it again. So obviously, we know that the Italians were in North Africa. There was a lot of imperialism yeah. going on there. A lot of um, This is pre Second World War, and there was the same before the First World War as well. But the Italians apparently had made their way to Kufra, mm-hmm. and um, they there was there were some refugees from that area, and one of them ended up speaking to Al Maji, and telling him just about where he was from and sort of the history of the area that he knew, and basically this guy, like I mentioned in the first episode was just going off about how there's many places that are of the Arabs and there's many places that are not ours that do not belong to us. Mm. And the places that are beyond the, those that are that belong to the Arabs are those of the Tibu. Mm -hmm. So he, and this is like an old man from a super remote oasis in the 1930s. Obviously this is like oral tradition being passed on to him. This is real talk. This is real talk Mm -hmm. that they just know of these places. It's just like this thing. They know it. They, they, they know what's theirs. They know what isn't. And this idea that there's something so far beyond, that, mm. that belongs to the TIBU, makes it sound so remote and just makes it sound so distinct and unique from anything Arab. You know yeah. what I mean? Like
1: there's a huge yeah. It's almost it like a just, dichotomy.
0: Yeah, almost. The two. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so what did he say here? So oh, he, he said like. Basically, Al spoke with an old man who was a refugee in the 1930s, he said, and he was talking about Zuzuri, he said, Kufra oasis did not always belong to the Arabs. Long ago, it was the land of the Tibu. So even Kufra mm. wasn't the land of the Arabs before. Interesting. So it almost to me sounds like they were venturing, like Kufra came later. There was oasis they were at before.
1: more remote.
0: It's almost like they're working from the middle to the coasts. These, these nomadic peoples in terms of their connection. And there's references from Egyptians saying that there were constant connections from these random nomadic peoples from Libya and people coming from the West, but they didn't ever actually really know where they were coming from. Mm, They were nomadic, but they were like, where are you coming from exactly? (laughs) How far did you come from?
1: And you know what? I've actually, that kind of speaks to the tension between the North African, um, uh, Cultural identity slash ethnic identity and the interior African identity and how there's been a lot of efforts from North Africans to dissociate. Right. They don't want to be and they almost it's it's that same sort of imperialistic attitude where it's like the lighter the skin the more superior and all this stuff right like right. that I kind of mentioned with the whole slave trade and the whole in you know, yeah. Middle Ages and even before that yeah yeah and it's yeah it's, that's super interesting to me to think that there was. Clear separations of yes. territory and and yeah, the, but but interconnection separations
0: from territory, but also like at certain stages, it was like they it was friendly. Like, and it goes yeah. on to say that the Tebu out of
1: necessity, probably, yes, where they're trading, and definitely they're, through mm-hmm.
0: because of trade and whatever else. He goes on to say that the tibu informed the Arabs that there were grazing grounds in the Uinet and go. also pastures and palm trees in. Murga. there are also noah valleys with great grazing grounds such as wadi zurzura so
1: and another thing too is like if you have multiple cultural slash ethnic peoples in uh, a region or whatever maybe these tales that come about and the minor discrepancies and the things that don't really line up are just a result of that right the result of the the linguistics of the the interpretation of the perceptions of the people witnessing this all this stuff right yeah so that's very cool. Uh, yeah, I like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, th- I got a few other things on here, but it's basically just along the same lines. like. Um,
1: well, even what... You already mentioned Herodotus, right? And the whole reference to the rock people and how the Tibu... Wasn't that interpreted or like the translated into rock dwellers or something or rock
0: people yeah it translates so there's sort of a bunch of different spellings of it and what some of those variations in spelling translates to rock people Mm -hmm. in sort of different dialect north african dialects and arabic dialects i suppose Hmm. um yeah they were they were obviously living super super remote there's another sort of quote here um just to go along what I was saying there about the Egyptians constantly engaging with people from the West, but never knowing exactly where they were from. They knew who they were, but never how far they'd come from. Mm-hmm. So like Berbers, Libyans, other Arabs coming from the West happened all the time. But when um, darker skinned peoples like the Tibu or descendants or related peoples of the Tibu would, would, would come out to the outlying Egyptian oases, they would vanish back into the desert. So that to defy pursuit, right? Like if they mm. were attacking an oasis, they would go out into the direction where, no, where they shouldn't be retreating to. Mm-hmm. And that was an indication early on that gave rise to the legend of Zerzura because that these these incursions on Docla and on these oases that were already remote, they retreated to, to where they couldn't escape. Presumably. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's kind of a cool little anecdote there. I like that. Okay. So I think we should move on to our main theories here sure we've gone through sort of the connections to the camel driver story and theories on europeans and, and more aryan peoples so far i think the most likely is the earliest possible inhabitants of this is what were the tibu peoples these nomadic north african tribes mm-hmm. and maybe changed hands from there whether or not these people actually had the technology and built a city like an advanced si- walled city is another thing yeah. altogether, and if they almost did, almost similar to
1: the oh, the Minoans is kind of what I'm right. imagining. Like,
0: I th- think it's totally possible, totally mm-hmm. possible. We're, we see there's evidence that coming right out of the Neolithic period that there was technology that was employed that we didn't think was possible, mm-hmm. and then even you know a few thousand years be- later than that, if you believe the oldest pyramids to have been built four thousand years ago, how the heck did they do it? <laughs> so it all ties together.
1: Yeah. Let's get into
0: your main theory here.
1: Well, I wanted to save this one for last. You want me to do 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 mine then? Well, I feel like mine's the most outlandish. Okay. But that all depends on, I
0: don't know. (laughs) <laughs> How
1: far you want to dive into the paranormal, I guess.
0: I think we should save definitely save yours for last. Because it's it's into the realm of the paranormal. Well,
1: because yeah, you're still like I feel like your main theory is definitely a little bit more historically based.
0: Yeah, my yeah, it is a little more historically based. So do you want me to get into that? Let me to just go for it? Sure. Let's do it. I believe that they were actually the Atlanteans that hmm. had That were on the tail end of their civilization and had gathered together a bunch of mercenaries to kind of support their fight. The only problem with that is sort of Plato's description of Atlantis and the Atlanteans is that it was destroyed before this actually happened. So it would have had Mm. to have been remnants of Atlantis. Okay. Um, That's kind of getting way out there. But this is definitively true. This did happen. There's recorded evidence that it happened. And some of the most well-documented evidence of Sea Peoples attacking is Egyptian. So, mm. um, there's a text called... Is the, this an
1: okay, Egyptian sources or is it from other sources? So
0: there's... No, it's definitely from other sources. So, like, one of the most... Here's the thing. Like I said, it's like the Dark Ages. This was, like, the pre... This was, like, yeah. the, the Dark Ages of beast of the time BC, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the best evidence of it is actually on Mount Calum, uh What is it? Uh, Katalamata. Okay. So this is a Greek mountain and... Basically, there was a Polish archaeologist who found Bronze Age settlement evidence at the top of this mountain, 1,100 meters above sea level, nestled into the rocks... Literally the hardest possible place to get to living there would be precarious. The winters would be freezing cold. Mm-hmm. There would be no reason to go there other than that you are fleeing people that were arriving from the sea.
1: For protection. For okay.
0: protection purposes. Um, half of it was obviously natural fortress of the mountain. The other half was designed by the people living there. Mm-hmm. But there's that among a lot of other evidence of mass migration and just mass... Uh, loss and knowledge and this kind of thing happened around that time because of these these attacks from the sea people. Mm-hmm. It's just this bizarre thing. So, the Medinet Habu is this Egyptian text that speaks of nine different factions of sea people.
1: Nine, nine.
0: factions. So...
1: So nine distinct.
0: Nine whole nations of invaders. Now, you can imagine... Or mercenary sheer, Or mercenary forces. Mm-hmm. You can imagine the sheer scale of this, right? Now, they, they attacked in waves... And they didn't use chariots. They didn't use the typical military tactics at the time. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason why, for the most part, they were really successful. They were less successful against the Egyptians. And Ramses II ended up being like a hero and one of the most well-liked Egyptian pharaohs of all time because he fended off the Sea Peoples. And that's depicted in a bunch of different hieroglyphs and stuff like that showing the um, the ox carts and different types of equipment that the sea peoples did have mm-hmm. but not the same military tactics. So where's my theory come in on Zerzura? Two things. Basically like I said there was Egyptian records say that over 50 years there were mercenaries from these sea peoples showing up.
1: 50 years?
0: Yeah yeah. Okay. So, quite a long time. Hmm. Now, was this
1: seasonal, I wonder?
0: I don't know. I mean, like, they just kind of showed up a bunch. The two main times they showed up were 1207 and 1173 BC. So, anyway.
1: I'm thinking back to Thucydides, sorry, on the whole, like, seasonal war, where it was like people went to war during the winter. They didn't war during the summer because that was when they're growing crops.
0: Right. No time. So no, everyone no time everyone did. doesn't have any
1: time. know, yeah, it's not in the schedule. Yeah. Anyway, so I schedule.
0: know. Put yeah. it on the calendar <laughs> for fall. <laughs> anyway, so there's basically two branches of thought off of this sea peoples thing. Because basically how this happened is like the sea peoples attack, the Mycenaeans fall, the Minoans fall, the Egyptians cling to life and manage to sort of limp their way through this Bronze Age attack. And then they never s- establish themselves. These sea peoples, they never become the kingdoms of these places they've conquered. They sort of just disperse and eventually the populations just kind of reintegrate. And we then have this resurgence. And then we've got the Greeks that kind of come up and become the most powerful in the Mediterranean and Mm -hmm. they end up controlling Egypt and all that kind of stuff. So my, my theory is that these first incursions into Egypt. So 1207, when they had success, when these sea peoples had some success, Mm -hmm. The possibility that once again we're coming back to this idea of fleeing populations, but this one actually I think makes more sense to me. So <coughs> this was at a point in the Egyptian Empire when it wasn't at its heyday, and other than Ramses later on defeating it's kind them, kind of on the decline. It's on the decline.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Perhaps there was a faction of Egyptians that thought that this was it for them when they see people started showing up that like and and they and they were losing
1: mm-hmm. that they
0: thought. Egypt isn't going to, this empire is not going to protect us anymore. And once again, followed a legend to safety.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the legend of Zuzura. The
0: legend of Zuzura, you know the
1: safety of the oasis. Following,
0: following, going along these other oases and wadis and eventually. What if they weren't even
1: following a tale? They were following the birds that they could see in the or air. Or that, you know? right? Like I'm just thinking like. Totally. Because we don't have any record rec- written records sorry, of that early of a claim to
0: Zuzura, right? No, we don't. We but don't. not so to say
1: that it doesn't exist, but just to say that we don't have We
0: might find something. Yeah, we don't know. We haven't, not, not everything's been excavated, obviously, out in the Sahara or in Egypt, so we don't know. That's that one line. Uh, that's, that's the one way mm-hmm. of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other, the later incursions of the Sea Peoples against Ramses II, mm-hmm. they lost. Ramses employed different tactics on the water and on land, <coughs> basically to learn in from the earlier incursions to defeat the Sea Peoples. Now, I, I, nobody knows who exactly these people were. Like, they were sort of just a hodgepodge. But if they lost in survive. one of these final incursions, perhaps a faction of these sea peoples looking to, looking for glory, looking for land, looking for something, a, way a way to survive after being defeated,
1: yeah.
0: they would have had nothing, they, nothing to lose. Presumably, if you're a group of mercenaries employed by Atlanteans or employed by whoever, mm-hmm. factions of the Minoans is another uh, another theory. Even though the Minoans supposedly were defeated by the Sea Peoples, some think that part of them actually were the Sea Peoples. Maybe the Sea Peoples occupied Zerzera. Maybe they took control of it and used that as maybe one of, as a hub. Yeah. And with the, either, either it was just a group of them that broke off because they just wanted to survive in some place that's awesome. Or it was a hub that broke off and thought, let's occupy somewhere remote for a later incursion into these other oases to kind of retry again mm. to occupy Egypt to try to accomplish what we couldn't the first time against Ramses II. That's, that's, my, that's my theory. I on honestly the sea feel Peoples.
1: like the Sea Peoples is its own episode.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, the Sea Peoples is totally and its I, own my, episode. My
1: question we're, is like when they were doing these waves of attacks, were they just there to plunder? Or were they there to colonize? It seems, to plunder. Exactly. Seem, it seems like to plunder. It seems exactly, and that reminds me of like reminds me of the Vikings and things like that. Yes. Right, where they're they're seafaring, they're very able, and they're not there to set up shop. No, they're just there to take what they want of yours. They and might they have move set up
0: semi permanent settlements, but not permanent settlements. Mm. And like we see that with the Vikings in North America, and it, it was... would have been coastal, totally. Yeah, like so, even Greenland,
1: all that kind of like thing. Yeah.
0: So this is sort of a different spinoff of that. That's cool.
1: I really like that. Um, Yeah. It's just there's just such a lack. I would really like to dive into whether or not there's other precedents for the Sea Peoples attacking different people throughout time or like preceding this or like exactly because we even we we read into the Minoans and we watched a documentary and how like they it's kind of a mysterious decline. Right. So basically that could be explained by. Um, by an attack from the sea peoples, yes. there was the other explanation where there was that huge tsunami caused by the explosion of that volcano.
0: Yeah, what, like, was, that? Um, what was
1: that island called again? Well, was... Crete,
0: I think, got cut, like is where. Well, well, that was Atlantis where the Minoans
1: had their main,
0: their right, main right,
1: right. civilization was right. from there, and then extended throughout. Was the it Santorini
0: then? Yeah, that the volcano. Was... Yeah. yeah.
1: Santorini that was what i was thinking of and then some people have posited that that was Atlantis and, Right. and the explosion was and the the yeah so basically the explosion and the eruption of the volcano made made a crater that was that basically took away half the island and created a huge tsunami that, that made its way the... to Crete and to all these so they're yeah. basically saying that the palace of king Midas would have been severely affected half the island would have been destroyed of Crete. right yeah so yeah i mean anyways and, well, I, just, I just wonder if there's any other examples of seafaring people even further in europe and then traveling along the coast what if they went along yeah. the coast of africa well
0: and that's totally possible like we're sea peoples is going to be its own episode 100 percent, because mm. it's really fascinating to me and like we're not going to get into too too much detail but obviously like just to give some yeah, examples right some of some that... of the like yeah right this second some of the Theories on who the sea people could have, could have been Sardinians. There were three different tribal factions in Sicily mm-hmm. um, at this point in time, sort of like 1500 BC leading up to 1200 where the where this stuff started to happen. Mm-hmm. So Sardinia, Sicily, um, sort of some of these other areas of the Mediterranean are, are the hubs of where these mercenaries would have sort of culminated, mm-hmm. is, the, is one of the theories. There's other theories that they could have been Norse, like, this was a pre-Viking raids, like, this was, like, the, this was before, like, right? Um Anyway, that's for its own episode, but regardless of who they were, they did show up and mess with the Egyptians, and I think that it's, uh, that's it's definitive. Plausible. We know that that's true, like, we know how, that's much more true than some of the Celtic references and things like that or some yeah. of the ideas that Coptic Christians and could have made their way out there. Even to
1: add to that like if they were attacking Egypt from the Mediterranean and they found the delta of the Nile who's to say that they wouldn't have sailed up the Nile all the way to say maybe the borders of um like the, the southern borders I mean of Egypt and things like that and then made their way from there. Right. Because like even when we were doing those google earth searches and things cause we're trying to that I found some crazy agricultural centers. Like, if you look on the south border of Egypt and just go from the Nile and look south... Or, sorry, look west, you'll find these crazy... There's, like, a series of, like, perfect circles. And they're all crops. And I'm thinking to myself, like, obviously these are man-made, manufactured, but maybe in ancient times they would have been greener areas that would have been crossable. Yeah. Even when we were talking about the Lost Army of Cambyses and they were going south and south towards Ethiopia and they were grazing on grasses as we discussed and then yeah. the grass turned into sand and whatever but maybe there was areas where it was greener yeah. that's all i'm trying to say totally anyways yeah that's that's sweet so that's your main theory that's my
0: main theory it was it was either the fleeing oh, yeah. people fleeing the sea peoples or the sea peoples themselves
1: interesting yes. cool so anyways yeah i guess the final theory We're getting a little crazy here, but not really. This is yeah, this is definitely where it gets fun.
0: It's not that crazy. I don't think it's that crazy. It's
1: not, and it is. Um, it's yeah, it has a lot of precedent in Islamic folklore and and also in Arabic mythologies and things like Mm -hmm. that. So basically, my premise is that the city of Zizura is just that. It's lost. Velocity? Did I say that? <laughs> 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 the velocity of Sisera is just that—it's lost, and maybe it's intentionally lost, and because of just the fact that it's remained elusive to so many searching for it, except for this Hamid Kelly, which was like, that's pretty nuts, man. If yeah. you're like, you know, and then and, and and those others that claim to have seen an oasis in the far off distance, which could be a mirage, it could be a, a variety of different things. But my argument is that all of this sort of points to the idea that there's a paranormal element in the existence of Zerzura. Okay. And that there are supernatural forces at work to conceal and reveal the oasis at will to those who are either in need or pose no risk to the city and its inhabitants. I say that loosely, inhabitants.
0: Interesting. So,
1: yeah, I already described it. Yeah, it relies on Arabic and Islamic mythology, um, which both point to this spiritual entity known as the jinn. So, right, and we've heard references to this because we've heard of these guardians of the city, right? right. Some, some refer to it as a, a black guardians black or black giants. giants. Yeah. And some people th- interpret that as um, manifestations of the jinn, And I'm going to just expound on that because initially I was like, the djinn, what the frick is that?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, in Western interpretations is known as the genie so if you're thinking aladdin you're thinking right yeah but well, well not, right, not right right, but <laughs> right. along you're the right. lines of what we're talking <laughs> yes. about so again um i have a precedent for my argument it comes it's cited by newbold um which he was part of the zizura club he wrote an article in 1928 and it is sourced in our resources page if you want to go look at that cool and so basically he says that The, yeah, so in the 1870s, or no, 1870s, where's that coming from? Sorry, that's my (laughs) notes all mixed up. That's okay. No, no, no. Anyways, yeah, so there, yeah, there's references from Schenker's book. Okay, so this is where it's coming from. Sorry, sorry, yeah. So... Schenker's book describes how in the Kitab al-Khanus, Canous is, like, that was the, yeah, the Book of Hidden Pearls yep. describes over 400 lost treasures. And it also describes um, ways to overcome the jinn Right. And through incantations and other references. And then as well, sorry, cited by Newbold. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, Newbold was citing an 1870s reference from this guy called Doherty. His full name is Charles Montague Montague, okay. like exactly like in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, <laughs> Doughty, and it was written yeah in the nineteen eighteen seventies, eighteen seventy six to seventy eight was when he was in Arabia, okay. and he wrote. So this is in Egypt. It is the Sinai Peninsula, so the yep. neighboring peninsula. Okay, what is that known as today? Saudi Arabia. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, international relations degree here. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, yeah. So in Volume 1 of Travels of the Arabia Deserta written by this Charles Doughty. He basically came to the conclusion that Zazura may denote both a real and a mythical oasis. So, he uses the example of Temya, te, sorry, Tema, Tema, T E Y M A, and this is a this is an oasis in Arabia. And when he was there, they were describing this what he calls the strangest fantasy, but in my mind, this is folklore, this is mythology, it's it's legit to a lot of people. Yeah. And he describes how they told him about this neighboring phantom oasis called <laughs> Eunat Masalat El Amin. Okay. And they describe how horses issue, like the sound, the neighing of horses issue from the enchanted appearance of the palms but all fadeth soon if a man approach them.
0: Interesting.
1: So th- some people would obviously interpret that as a mirage. Yeah. Other people would interpret that as a trick of the djinn. Okay. And so, yeah. So those are my two precedents. But basically, I'm going to dive into a whole whole little brief bio on the jinn. Go So, for it. yeah. So basically, the word jinn literally means something hidden or veiled from sight okay um the earliest known reference is in the quran so that dates back to 1400 bce and it also is in a middle eastern book of fairy tales which i don't actually have a name for it's an arabic name but basically there's aladdin and the wonderful lamp is one of the t- tales told Interesting. so again disney reference <laughs> a little bit they just, just swipe that right from there yep. anyway so in arabic and islamic mythologies the jinn can be summoned by a sorcerer instead of a victim it can cause demonic possession. It can act as a guard or a servant depending on the ability of the conjurer. It can also be a shapeshifter from human to animal and is thought to have a less than physical body, it's described as a shadowy ghost with no individual structure.
0: But it's terrestrial though. It's this It is. That's... It's
1: it's described as not a deity. It it's lesser than an angel but it's more than human. So it's kind of a weird spiritual interdimensional thing. So Very it's cool. thought to appear in mists or sandstorms it's almost like um when you're picturing say like genie in aladdin like you know how he's like he's like a green or sorry he's a blue body but then he fades into this little misty like little yeah, tapering off yeah, thing yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of and he's in a lamp all the time a lot of the times it's described as you can coax a gin into a lamp by placing its favorite um like precious stone in there and then <laughs> and then using words incantation things like that to encourage it in as well, it's also interpreted as an interdimensional being, so it can live parallel to our reality and exist within it, but it's not bound by it, so it can come and go. Um, there's instances where it basically travels from, like, it travels instantaneously. Like, it can just, like, you know, like, teleport, essentially, or whatever. Right. And there's different types of jinn. There's different classes and things like this. So, my, this is totally, this is, this is tangent territory all the way, but... Basically, I came across this one example. It's, it's called the ghoul, spelled G-H-U-L. And the, the English anglicized version is the ghoul. Like, you know, we are all familiar with the ghoul. It's like ghosty or whatever. That was
0: a creepy word. So
1: the ghoul is a female djinn that inhabits graveyards and deserted places. It is a shapeshifter, but cannot change one feature. Cloven hooves like a goat. When I heard that, or read that, sorry... <laughs> I instantly thought about Skinwalker and how, like, I just honestly started to think about this as a Middle Eastern slash Islamic Arabic, Arabic, sorry, interpretation of what we call in the West, in, in our own like more uh, North American mythologies and folklore, yeah. the, the shapeshifter,
0: of yeah. the skinwalker,
1: and yeah. all this stuff. So I thought it's that was really,
0: really cool. That is an interesting sort of cultural yes. crossover there. And
1: so bas- these different classes, so there was the ghoul, and this is a more malevolent one. Okay. And then as well, there's the sila, which is another really rare female djinn. It's able to shapeshift, and it's, it's ma- able to manipulate its surroundings and people. So I'm tying this into the 1481 story of the camel driver and how I'm thinking that he could have been bewitched by a djinn. He could have okay. seen things that he thought were there that were not there. Right. He could have seen a culture there and peoples with fair skin that were not there. Okay. And the only thing, the only sort of like
0: Could the flip side of that be that they that they are there, but that it's like it is that's the place of the djinn? Is that because when we were Mm -hmm. first talking about this, that was sort of like the flip side of that. It would be like... So they're the
1: guardians and they protect it. And so maybe what they can do is they can disguise an entire oasis or entire walled city that's like bountiful, whatever. They can disguise it as a desert sand dune. As if
0: it's not even there.
1: Right so that's the flip side so either they're conjuring something that isn't there for some people to see and some people that are in need like Hamid Kalia which he would have died if nothing had happened right and they are described as that right like guardians of some sort so it's not as if they're all mean they're out to get you like they can help yes so anyways yeah there's that and just another cool side note was the idea that many modern Egyptians, up to 48% in this one peer-reviewed study that I, that I read, they who experienced sleep paralysis, sorry, they claim to have been visited slash attacked by a djinn. And so to me, again, yeah, we get the, the references to skinwalker through the cloven hooves. But we also get the references to shadow people because a lot of the times they're described as exactly a shadow person, a shadow of a being. That can stand on top of a sleeping person, can choke a sleeping person, can stand beside their bed, and people experience this. Obviously, within the modern scientific lens, this is all described as sleep paralysis that people are interpreting in different ways. Yes, and they did a cross comparison between people in Egypt versus people in Denmark. Okay, just to just to see the cultural nuances and things and the belief systems. But yeah, I thought that was super cool.
0: That's an interesting way. So to, to think me, it, yeah,
1: the gin and like it's... and I've come across like people from. Um, Islamic blogs and things, and they even say like the jinn can be ascribed to uh, to magicians, like to even like there was one guy that referenced the Bermuda Triangle as the as the the home of Satan, Satan <laughs> spelled S A Y T A N. This is a uh, Islamic version of this sort of like devil or whatever. Okay and how his lair was over water and so that's where the Bermuda Triangle comes in and the whole like manipulations and apparently there's a lot of um a lot of people ascribe um electronic um malfunctions things like that to the djinn as like a trick or whatever yeah. basically the trickster right the so trickster. we see this in all sorts of cultures definitely and,
0: stuff. and sometimes it's benevolent sometimes it's not exactly. and so i i think that I think that's a very interesting Isn't theory cool? for Zerzura because it sort of ties into the idea of like, are you seeing a mirage? But it could be more than that. Yeah, and you've got the and what's the, the bounds of...
1: of human perception? Right, and even this is really cool because there's, uh, according to the Ashari, which is a branch of the Sunni school of Islam, the existence of jinn. This is a quote: the existence of jinn cannot be proven because arguments concerning the existence of jinn are beyond human comprehension.
0: End quote interesting
1: that is so big to me totally. like i just i love that because uh, you know we're so agnostic we're like you know like, there's so much stuff out there and yeah. we're just like yeah
0: totally anyways you know, you know what that ties into for me mm-hmm. i mean we see this a lot with things that's where it's like you know can you see like you can only see it in certain circumstances or is there some sort of other force allowing you to see it or are they making you see it yeah. because it's not there whether it's a positive or negative situation mm-hmm. like we see that with we're going to do a episode probably in the future on a, a Russian city that disappeared called uh, Kitze. K- 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 in K- the same <sighs> idea, it's like the city that's sunk into a lake and only some can hear mm. the people singing at certain times. Some some can see it depending right. on where you're situated. Some right? can
1: hear the horse neigh another
0: Exactly. Expert. Another yeah. reference mm-hmm. to that was came from uh, one of the more recent Astonishing Legends episodes where they did the Yeti. And I can't remember which part it was, but they mentioned something along those lines where it was like, When you're up in the mountains of Tibet, there's some sort of mythical city up there that was associated, like the like the Yetis were guarding it or something like that. I have to go back and listen, but I think that yeah, they mentioned something along the lines of like you can only see it if you're in the right situ, if you're situated the right way, if you're in just the right place and you have just the right perspective and just the right timing. Or, or a palace or something like that. Cool. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was along the oh, same lines. We should go back and that re-listen that. That you can that. only see it when you're in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a question of whether it's real or not. It's only whether it's real to the person who's in the position to see it. If we're dealing with things that yeah. are interdimensional, they're not necessarily empirical to us empirical and they can the real, just or,
1: they can flip through the pages of interdimensions and stuff and yeah and that would explain to me the idea that they can basically teleport themselves from one place to the other instantly right whatever but there's so many yeah exactly that right where it's like oh there's so
0: much <laughs> we're right back into interdimensionality like kind of like we ended up in at the end yeah. of the yoga pogo episode And people got a little upset with me on that one being like, you didn't give any lead up to your interdimensional theory. But (laughs) (laughs) this one, I think we definitely (laughs) did a better job of that. But I like that. I, I really, like that. I really... The idea of the djinn is very towards. cool. You know, what's funny.
1: As soon as I found that theory, too, I was just like... I kind of just threw out the rest of them <laughs> in my head. Like, all right, I'll just Stick do Stick to what's the most I'll do fun. some, yeah, some cursory glances Yeah, and whatever. But not to that I wanted to just automatically disclude anything that's no, more plausible. No. But to me, like, this is... Even the gin, right? Like, I feel like both of our theories... The gin could be its own episode, depending on how people feel. Like could you know, be like, its if, own if people episode. want more, we're definitely gonna give them more of that. Definitely. But for me, yeah, the gin is definitely cool. I feel like we could tie that into a cross-cultural comparison of different interdimensional spiritual entities that may or may not be benevolent, malevolent, whatever. Totally. Blech.
0: That's a mouthful. <laughs>
1: benavolent, benavolent. <laughs> so I guess we
0: are gonna wrap this up. We just—that's pretty mean, much that it. Was, uh, that was our two two main theories. We went through some of the other sort of kind of predominant theories out there, even though there really aren't that many. It's this is very a lesser known. This yeah. is a much lesser known lost city if you will or lost oasis if you will which is why we wanted to cover it we always want to bring you guys stuff that you haven't heard before
1: and if you guys have anything that's really cool that you haven't heard talked about in any other podcast and you want it to be talked about tell us about it and we will be so down definitely and (laughs) for this
0: one i mean let us know Celts zoroastrians coptic christians sea peoples what do you what think do you,
1: exactly what the is your gin? opinion like
0: what is your opinion on the and do you have
1: anything to add to the argument right yeah, and, totally or... i mean
0: we took a cursory glance at a lot of this stuff so if anybody out there is kind of like you know directly down the rabbit hole for any one of these yeah. things and knows if you're an more, expert
1: please please
0: reach out to us yes so anyway thank you so much for listening um couple more cleanup things i guess i mean again we said at the beginning thank you so much for all the reviews if you yeah. dig in on the show leave us a review let us know what you think the five star reviews go a long way we really appreciate it
1: we're trying to get on that uh, new and noteworthy list on we iTunes. would love to be
0: on the new and noteworthy that'd be <laughs> that's sweet that's an
1: accomplishment apparently it's pretty hard to get on there so.
0: yeah, we'll see what we can do <laughs>
1: whatever yeah but
0: we're coming at you with weekly episodes now on sunday night so stay tuned for sunday night episode releases yeah. and then on two-parters you're going to get one on wednesday as well just like today exactly and, I mean, I can't really think of much else. Reach out oh, to us at yeah. into the portal mailbox at gmail.com for questions or comments or exactly. suggestions. And like we
1: said, too, with being like, we're going to be putting all this up on YouTube. It's not going to be right away because we have to catch up with our other episodes yeah. and, and post those. And it's kind of weird. Like, YouTube has some some wait times for yeah. not not uploading but processing That's for okay. some of the longer stuff. We'll be stuff. up there soon enough. Yeah, it's all good. But, like, yeah, just so you know, just be patient and check back once in a while if you're curious. And I'm going to be on that, like, tomorrow. ASAP. So I'll be, yeah. <laughs> that's that's my job. Definitely. But, yeah. So, reach out to us, Twitter, um, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Yep, that's
0: the one. Into Intotheportal.com is our website. And you can reach all these resources, all the resources we've referenced, the all the links too. to everything. Like, there's... Yes. there's
1: There are so many books that I even uncovered just today that I want to... I'm going to put either into the bookstore or just put on our resources page under additional readings, Cool. which is at the bottom of all of our like website links and stuff like that. So anyways, yeah, look, look forward to that if you're really curious about this.
0: Stay tuned for that and stay tuned for episode five. We're already moving on to episode five. It'll be, I guess this Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) We've got some work to do, but that's that's what's going to happen.
1: (laughs) <laughs> you know. okay that's coming up all right guys thanks
0: so much for listening to into the portal and uh we'll catch you next time
1: stay tuned see ya Bye.